0: This is A Kick in the Grass with Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair on the Sportsnet Radio Network.
1: An international edition of A Kick in the Grass. Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair with you. Follow along on Twitter at DanRiccio underscore and at SN Jeff Blair. DMs are open. Send us questions for the show to our inboxes. We answer all of your questions in the injury time segment. At the end of each program. If you're enjoying the show, hit that subscribe button on your preferred podcatcher so that way you never miss an episode. And we appreciate it if you'd leave a review as well. Our guest today, Chris McLaughlin of BBC Scotland and Alex Webb of Bloomberg, as Ryan Reynolds, yes, uh, Vancouver's own Ryan Reynolds has bought Wrexham AFC. And we'll talk about that coming up. Uh, I I don't know if I've like I've dreamt of owning a football club, Jeff. I don't know if uh, Wrexham would have been my first choice.
0: Yeah, it's it's uh, I mean it's all of our dreams, isn't it? Um, <laughs> to own a football club, and it's you know it, it is it's going to be fascinating to see how the how the pandemic, leaving aside Wrexham for a minute, because I I mean that, that's yeah. probably a little bit of a vanity play. I mean who knows? I you know soccer clubs. I, I mean, certainly Ryan Reynolds has enough money that, uh, you know, I, th- I think he'll be able to make this investment count, but it will be fascinating to see what happens once we get through the pandemic, providing we get through it at some point and, and, and see what it does to the value of of certain soccer clubs. And it will be interesting to see that first sale uh, once the pandemic is over. I think I think. You know, the value of a team is only what somebody else will give you for it. It doesn't matter what you think it's worth or what Forbes thinks it's worth or what, what anybody thinks it's worth. The value is what will somebody else pay you for your team? And I, and I think once we get a read on that, you know, as we did, for example, with the New York Mets in Major League Baseball, $2.5 billion for the Mets in the middle of a pandemic, clearly. Clearly, a baseball team has some value. We'll see what the value of a soccer team is at some point. But Wrexham, it's just a great story. It's just a yeah. great... You know, and never mind the fact that... Just think of the marketing opportunities with Deadpool and, and Wrexham. Oh, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> I uh,
1: I was today years old when I found out Wrexham played a match in the Cup Winners' Cup back in uh, 1991. But uh, we'll get to that coming up uh, in uh, later segments of the show. But uh, we have... All the teams have booked their tickets for Euro 2020, which will actually be played in Euro 2021. Um, and you're watching Hungary and Scotland book their tickets and the celebrations afterwards, even amidst a pandemic, still What about North that. Macedonia? What <laughs> about North Macedonia celebration? Goran
0: Pandev made his, I mean, Goran Pandev has played for like 17 years internationally. And he's, I mean, it was a great
1: story. I feel like Goran Pandev is 75 years old and we, we just haven't figured it out yet, but it's, uh, <laughs> you know, th- those moments are great. And I'm just kind of wondering, Jeff, like when, when are we going to get that moment for the Canadian men's team? You know, it's uh, 1986 is the only time they've been, I, I wasn't even born yet. So I'm still, I'm still waiting on that one.
0: Yeah. We get a free pass to the North American world cup, but that's, that's not going to be quite the same. I, i listen, I've got a, Maybe it's just I, I have an inordinate amount of faith in John Herdman, but I think that I think that that opportunity in that moment is coming very very soon. Uh, I'm I'm really bullish on on the uh, on the Canadian team. I'm I I like I just like what I'm seeing in every level. I like what I'm seeing in every level about the sport in this country right now. I I hope we do get to see some internationals. I I'd, I'd like to get a chance to see. You know a healthy Alfonso Davies and an informed Jonathan David and some of the uh, some of the younger guys working there, working there as well. But I, I think we're on I think we're on the verge of 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 getting that moment. I I must tell you though, uh, watching a little bit of Wales in the U.S. Mm-hmm. You know, scoreless draw, but just looking at the U.S. team and. Imagining for a minute, or wrapping my head for a minute around the idea that even the even the players who aren't playing full time for their European club teams think about think about the influence they're being around. Think about uh, McKennie, the influence of being around Ronaldo. Think about des the influence just in practice. Uh, You know, think about the guys that are with RB Leipzig and being able to work with Julian Nagelsmann. (sighs) This I I got to tell you, I, I think. We're going to have our moment, but boy, I think the United States is on the verge of becoming a becoming a real power here once again. And and uh, CONCACAF is going to CONCACAF is getting more and more difficult. And that's the only way to put it.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of a golden generation coming through here for, for the U.S., and hey, Canada's got their own. Uh, it's not really a high bar to reach a golden generation for us Canadians, but uh, uh, we've got world superstars, and Jonathan David and Alphonso Davies will see how far they can take us. But as for the Euro, uh, we're going to talk about Scotland. Uh, Chris is going to join us here in a few minutes. But as you look at it right now, Jeff, you know we're—it's going to happen a year later than expected. France, Belgium, England, Spain, Netherlands, Italy, Portugal. I guess there's that group of seven that's kind of—it's kind of the favorites.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, look, I've—I've watched a fair amount of the matches uh, this week, and I, I. I still like France, you know, I I, I've looked at all I've looked at all the teams, Uh, you know, England. I know the bookies love England, but I mean, that's a reflection of the market. I think more than it is Mm -hmm. than it is reality. Right. Uh, believe England, England are co-favorites. I still they're fine. I don't think they're as good as France. I don't think they're as good as Germany on Germany's day. Right uh, to me, there and and I, I think for whatever reason, I think a lot of people are sleeping in Portugal once again, which is not a good thing to do. It, I mean, it it just isn't. We historically, it's not a good thing to do. And Spain is Spain. I mean, I I think right now, as I look at it, you know, my top four countries would be France, Spain, Portugal, and Germany, and I and Germany and in that order because I got a lot of concerns about about the German team.
1: Yeah, the the German team. Still still going through a bit of a transition uh, from, from what they were in the past. Belgium, you know, the way Belgium kind of bullied around England uh, ah. the other day was, was pretty impressive, too. I mean, with <laughs> their golden generation is going to go awry pretty soon if, if they don't make the most of, of what they've currently got. Yeah,
0: see, to, to me, Belgium's like England. I, I just don't trust them. I don't trust right. them when push comes to shove. Uh, they're... they're they're capable of making that killing error. And I, I love the manager. I love Roberto Martinez. I'm not one of these people looks at Roberto Martinez as this guy who's kind of lucked into a really good situation. But there's just, there's there's something missing when I watch Belgium play. And I don't know, I, I don't know what it is. I don't think it's anything tactical. To me, as I said, they're a little bit like the English. They're a little bit like the Dutch. I, I just don't know if they'll, if, if they will be there when it really gets tough. I, uh,
1: I, I'm i going to make the most homer pick of all time, but I, I truly do believe this, Jeff. I, I have Italy as a dark horse going into next year's tournament. I can see that. They, they've got one of the better midfields in Europe right now, and nobody really talks about it. You know, Jorginho is maybe the only player that's – uh, most well-known because of where he plays. He's at Chelsea, takes their penalties. But beyond that, Manuel Locatelli uh, failed move to Milan. That's behind him. He's playing some of the best football of his young career. Nicolo Barella is getting better every single season, and now he's with Inter Milan and has been, for me, one of their bright spots in an otherwise very mediocre start to their season. Sandro Tonali just made his move to Milan. He's getting to play alongside Zlatan Ibrahimović and is hyped as the next pirlo that's a pretty high bar to reach but he does have enough talent to be special fiorentina's building their midfield around castrovilli there's Galliardini at inter as well lorenzo pellegrini at roma the Azzuri are they're on the upswing you know i haven't even mentioned the guys that have been there for a while we know the defense is still intact with chiellini and banucci maybe they're getting a little bit long in the tooth but i think they can still get it done in big matches And, of course, you have uh, Marco Verratti, who's with PSG in that midfield as well. They're headed to the Final Four of the Nations League. They haven't lost a match in years, it seems. I don't really care about that. I just know I look at that Italy team, and they're finally coming out of this lull they've had since uh, the 2012 Euro Final when they uh, were kind of a Cinderella story going up against the Spanish but they're finally ready to contend again at a major European tournament or international tournament, I should say, and that's going to happen next summer. Well, For your it. point
0: is well made. Your point is well made. That that two 0 win over Poland, they had a lot of their players out. Uh, you know, they, had they didn't have a players league. out they had Jeff. Twenty players out, right? And, and that second goal was, I think, Berardi. The second yeah. goal. The second goal. Twenty-seven passes leading up to that goal. So you're absolutely right about the, about the midfield. And yes, I I uh, I would the fact that we can look at italy as a dark horse i think is is simply a a reflection of how we used to view the italians they used to be one of the you know every tournament they would be a favorite they'd be the team you didn't want to play and and i can absolutely i absolutely agree with you uh i i i can see them as being the team that is relatively unfancied going into the tournament and ends up and ends up coming through and pulling off a surprise but I I got to tell you for me I I think France is on a different level. I I just do. I mean, you know, uh, watching Griezmann and Pogba, you know, two guys who were just having horrible times in their club teams. You know, they may be they may be the the freshest players in that tournament when they get around cuz Pogba has Pogba started on the bench 5 of the 7 games Man U has played or or Manchester United played between international breaks. Um so <laughs> You know, d- d- depending on how that works out, you could have those two those two players being incredibly fresh. But my goodness, that's still an impressive that's an impressive team. They're deep end. they love playing for their manager. They absolutely love playing for their manager.
1: Uh, we've got to talk a little bit more about France. We got a question on Paul Pogba, who had some uh, interesting comments uh, after uh, France's uh, win. Mm. Uh, and uh, mainly pointing at his time with Manchester United right now. So we'll get to that. That's coming up an in injury time uh, listener question uh, for the show. So you know it, it was great. You know being uh, I guess I'm an honorary Hungarian now, Jeff. That after I got married <laughs> there last summer and well, the, royal uh, the, royal the royal wedding, the royal wedding. Yes, the royal wedding. <laughs> and uh, my wife is Hungarian. Um, it was uh, it, Budapest is a fine city. It's great. Everybody should go visit. Um, I I. I jumped out of my chair when I saw the Dominic Zobosale goal, uh, to, to send them through to the, to the Euro for their first major tournament since 1986, the mighty Magyars. And now Scotland who got a ton of play, uh, for their, uh, win on penalties over Serbia, they gave up the late equalizer and everybody's like, ah, Scotland's going to screw it up again. Uh, but they, they found a way and, uh, I I thought I was going to hate the 2014 Euro, but hey, I I thought it was fine in 2016. And I'm liking it even more now with some of the stories we're getting out of this qualifying system.
0: Yeah, and that's what what you hope for if you're UEFA. And I understand our initial reaction is to assume that, well, if we expand a playoff format or we expand a tournament, we're cheapening the tournament, uh, we're watering down the competition. You can make that case, I guess. But a couple of things. One, we know that God loves Scotland. God loves North Macedonia, Hungary. They're not going to the final. I don't think there's anything wrong with allowing, I'm not going to say as many countries as possible to have a shot at at, at at the European championship or any championship for that matter. But I don't think it's a bad thing to allow a bunch of countries to have their moment put them in a position to have their moment if they succeed there's no there's no harm no no harm was done by north macedonia getting through i mean i'm sure george is not very happy but no harm was done by north macedonia getting through um I, I think sometimes we need to remember that sports when it's really good is something that gives us standout uh spectacular moments, moments of emotion, especially now, moments of deep meaning. And you know, you, 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 you talked about Hungary. You know, the the reaction of the North Macedonian players when Pan, you know, throwing Panda in the air. Like you have to be pretty cold hearted to not look at a guy like that and say, well done. You know, you're getting your you're getting your moment in the sun. Um, you know you have a, a, a good servant for the sport. The same thing with Scotland, Mike I, I will tell you this the the one the one thing I'm sad about is the fact that if we don't have fans in euro at the euros, you' know, you're, a generation of fans is going to be robbed of the opportunity of seeing the tartan army in action. My friend Stephen Brent, who's covered several World Cups and several euros, still remarks about the day he got on a train and he was in a car full of scottish fans they were traveling to some match and how much fun it was just how 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 joyous the experience was and that's you know i'm hoping fingers crossed that we're at least in a position where there can be some fans traveling because again i think that's that's part of the story i don't miss fans at club matches all that much but it is really noticeable, Danny, when they're not at international matches. It it, it really is.
1: Yeah, uh, that moment, uh, you know, Scotland getting back, uh, would have been great to see a, a bunch of traveling fans there and, in belgrade and, and enjoying that moment together and i i just do want to say I, I don't i don't forget gabor kirai and his track pants at euro 2016 no nobody can
0: I, the great track pants man. yes
1: <laughs> <laughs> i know i overlooked it for a second there but uh, i i cannot forget gabor kirai and those great pants so we won't be playing in that uh in goal for for hungary at the next euros uh now joining us uh to continue this story on uh scotland is chris mclaughlin of the bbc thanks for this chris how are you not too bad,
2: guys. Uh, yeah, I'm very well. Thank you, all the better, for finally, finally covering uh, a Scottish football success story internationally. Yeah, it's nice for a change.
1: Yeah, and uh, I mean, it all came, it felt like it was all crashing down after that, that late equalizer. um felt like uh, just the, the, the air came out of the room pretty quick there, like, oh, not this again, right?
2: Oh man, it was so, so typically Scottish, or for a a moment it seemed so typically typically Scottish. So I'm in the stadium and I have to, my brief there was to, on the full time at 90 minutes, I had to head out of the stadium and jump in front of a TV camera and be live into BBC Scotland five minutes after the 90 minutes. So I'm heading off to the exit, full of hope, earpiece in, ready to go to tell the nation about how amazing um, the game was and uh, I think I looked up at the clock and it said eighty nine thirty one, just as the corner was swung in <laughs> and a roof fell in. So thankfully it all worked out but yeah, it was a very, very big scare. You know,
0: I, I looked at this this Scottish team and there are a lot of names you know, people will recognise you know, from the Prem or from Andy Robertson, uh, Kieran Turney, hmm. other names. But it seems to me that the story of of this this club is more David Marshall, Steve Clark, and maybe even Declan Gallagher. Like, what is it? You know, it, we hear about golden generations and things, things like that. In Canada, we think we've got our our best generation of, of football players coming up. That's not the case with this team,
2: though, is it? No, I think that's fair. I think that's right. I mean. Um... You know, it's not... You're right, we have the likes of Robertson, we have the likes of Tierney, but it's not star-studded. Um, it is not at all star-studded, but you're right, there are key players who are are shining at just the right time. Declan Gallagher's a great success story at Motherwell. Um, he's only really come to light in the past couple of years. Uh, David Marshall, of course, is a stalwart. He's been there. He's such a nice guy. I spoke to him, the day after the game, and he was so humble, um, and, and it's really, really good to see guys like this doing so well. One thing that I think is key to to the Scotland success, and that is you mentioned that word club, and Steve Clark has been very, very keen, and l- listen, everyone says this, every international manager says they want to create a club mentality at international level. It's the holy grail. For international managers, but you do genuinely see signs of that in this Scotland squad. As I say, I spent the day with a number of them um, after it, uh, in between mentioning their hangovers and trying to work out who whose eyes were reddest. To be honest, but th- there is a genuine, there is a genuine uh, togetherness in this squad that um, that can only be that can only be down to Steve Clark.
1: So. Twenty-two years without a a major tournament. I mean, Scottish football is so rich in in tradition. I mean, how what, what's what's happened? Why why has this gap been so long?
2: Yeah, and, and funnily enough, I started as a sports journalist about three months after France '98. So I have covered every failed <laughs> every failed campaign. So I'm probably the best person to to ask that question. And, and there's no obvious answer, to be honest. There is no obvious answer. Um, we have been through a succession of of, uh, of managers. Um, everyone promised at some point during that um, process that, look, it swings and roundabouts. Scotland have had so many good players uh, in the past and, and qualified regularly for, for big competitions that it was going to come round. But no one knew it was going to take this long. Listen, I think you can also throw in... The fact that there are there are more teams in European football now, with the breakup of 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 Yugoslavia, the breakup of the USSR, um, that can't be ignored. Um, but you know what it's like in international football these days, and, and similarly to club level, there's so much money um, that can be had from actually qualifying for tournaments that the longer you don't qualify, then the further you can slide down the pecking order, and that's kind of, I think, what's partially to blame for Scotland's. Um, absence all these years. How would you describe this 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 club tactically? Um, well, that's the other point I was going to make. You know, he has Steve Clark was very successful at Kilmarnock here in in Scotland um, before he took the uh, the international job. He's been a he's been a manager, of course, in English Premiership. Uh, sorry, a coach in the English Premiership and a manager down there. So he knows football, and he has stuck very rigidly. Uh, To this three at the back, the two wing-backs, he was very heavily criticised. You know, there's the three at the back, the two wing-backs, the two sitting midfielders, and then the three up front. He has been heavily, heavily criticised as Scotland manager for that. It wasn't working out at all at the start. He decided, look, no, I've got the players to play this. I know this will work at some point. And hey, look, up until yesterday, they were nine games unbeaten. So it really has paid off for him.
1: You know, I, I when I think of national teams and, uh, you know, being a, of Italian heritage myself, it, it always felt like the Italian team would would have success when Juventus was was at its best and had a strong uh, Italian influence. And we saw that with uh, some of their back lines, uh, you know, in mm. the in the 2006 and even in 2012. But. You know, for Scottish football, Rangers and everything that went on in 2012, and, and the insolvency, and now coming back towards, you know, the top of the the Premiership, um, as as that helped Scottish Scottish football get back to a major tournament. That its its clubs, its biggest clubs, are having success again.
2: Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't think it's it's certainly not hurt the international scene. Um, uh, the, the the revival of of Rangers. I think it probably did hurt um as they as they plummeted through the leagues and tried to make their way back up again um yeah it, it it could be something to do with that there is I think there has been for some time a bit of a disconnect between um the fans and perhaps even the clubs and the national team here in scotland and and it's amazing genuinely amazing what one result can do to to really mend that you can see real signs of everyone getting behind the national side again and and being pleased at being able to get behind the national side again. But you're right, look, Rangers were in the, the footballing wilderness for so long. They are strong again and they have money to spend on players again. The one caveat I would put in there is that, you know, Hearts as well here in Scottish football had their own financial issues and they had to play young Scottish players from the academy and that actually worked out well. For Scottish footballer and especially in the under twenty ones, it's a wash with some of those young Hearts players who were forced uh, to play in 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 the uh, the Hearts first team because of their own financial woes. That didn't quite happen at Rangers in the same way. But look, you're right; um, having Rangers back is certainly not is certainly not a hindrance. That's for sure.
0: Now looking ahead to Euro twenty twenty uh, or Euro twenty twenty one, I guess as we <laughs> can call it now. Um, I you know we understand that. There's always going to be a certain amount of un of uncertainty because of because of the pandemic i mm. I don't think anybody i mean i I think most people like the idea of the tournament being spread throughout different countries i you know certainly preferable to having it perhaps in one place and i've got to think in particular that for the tartan army for Scotland's fans, the possibility of hosting games at home against you know, the Czech Republic and then going to Wembley uh, to play the English. That has to be just, I mean, folks have to be just giddy with anticipation. And, and I, you know, I mean, I, a vaccine can't come soon enough for all of us, but man, I, I, I guarantee you in Scotland it can't come soon enough for anybody, can it?
2: Yeah, I, I, that's absolutely right. Although I, I will disagree with one thing that you said. I actually haven't spoken to anyone who likes the format of taking okay. it around in 2020. I don't think that, and I think especially here in Scotland, because we have been away from big competitions for so long, there is something kind of nostalgic and quite romantic about the fact that we, we all go as a nation to one country and, mm. and 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 move around the cities and really soak up the travel aspect of it. Um, so I think I think Sc- Scottish football fans are actually a little bit disappointed. From that aspect, and there is still the possibility that it may well end up um, in one country, that's still um, up for debate, isn't it, with UEFA. You're right, though, look, at England, at Scotland, at Wembley on the 18th of, of June, um, good luck social distancing in, in Trafalgar Square <laughs> on that yeah. afternoon. Um, yeah. So it, it is clearly the, the fixture that everyone here is talking about. Um, but I think also we're still riding high off the back of, what happened in Belgrade. And people are saying, look, like, there's no reason why we couldn't have a, a fair old go at it. Um, Czech mm-hmm. Republic um, are certainly beatable. Um, Croatia are not what they were. And England, you know, given the, the history between the two uh, nations, sometimes it can be a bit of a toss up. Sometimes the occasion can get in the way of the football. And that also helps Scotland.
1: Yeah. And uh, the, I mean, England, Scotland uh, should, should be something to behold once the tournament does come around. how, you know, we talk about obviously the pandemic. I mean, it, mm. the the chance to celebrate this moment. How how was that different than what it would have been?
2: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, I have covered. Well, let's start first of first of all in Belgrade. Um, you know, it's not uh, going too far to say that if that game had been played in normal times there would have been tens of thousands of Scotland fans in that city, absolutely no doubt. I've been to many big games with Scotland, and the the Tartan army travel in numbers, as you know. So Belgrade would have been rocking well into the night and well into the morning, and it was a real shame that the the Scotland fans missed out on that. Back here, back in Scotland, um, we we watched various social media videos of deserted streets, um, erupting, you could hear the eruption behind closed doors. Everyone inside their homes uh, cheered that that David Marshall save. Uh, we had people with bagpipes on roofs in, in, in Edinburgh. Um, yeah, it, it was it was interesting. It was different um, and not what anyone had predicted or hoped. Clearly, um, but I think everyone's just hoping that once uh, once the, the competition kicks off, we can all make up for that.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Chris, we really appreciate your time here today and, and sharing these insights. Thank you. Hey, all thanks, time. Chris. All the best. Take care. There is Chris McLaughlin of BBC Scotland. Where, where, where would Canadians be partying? I guess all across the country. Uh, should, should we make a World Cup uh, on the men's side anytime soon, Jeff?
0: Yeah, oh, we can all meet in the middle of the country. We can meet. Uh, well, I was going to say we could meet at my mother's house in Manitoba, but that house is now sold. So, but I'm sure we could. I'm sure we could find a place. Well, I'll tell you what, Riccio. I mean, you are, you, yeah. know, you are Hungarian royalty. I'm sure you've got a palace someplace that that, that, that that we could we could gather in. I think we could, you know, we could find it. I don't know are, where. What? That's it's an interesting question. If Canada were to advance, yeah, like what would the reaction be across the country? You know what? What cities would it would it really resonate in? You know, clearly yeah. Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal. It'd be interesting,
1: though. It'd be interesting. I know, like I, I do. Like we're we're going to be playing in in 2026, but I I do want a real qualification moment. Yes, you know? absolutely. I I really do want a at some point in my life. I want a real qualification moment. You know, because all I've known. You know, is the eight one in San Pedro Sula, and just so many, you know, even even in the Gold Cup, you know, Atiba was onside. You know, how many how many of those? I have too many bad moments watching the loss to Haiti in the last World uh, Gold Cup. Sorry, I mean, uh, it's just uh, I, I want an actual uh, qualifying moment at some point in my life as a Canadian yeah, soccer fan. I can remember
0: Canada actually qualifying for the World Cup. I can remember the match um but you know it was just it wasn't the same right it, yeah. it, it it wasn't soccer didn't have a didn't have the type of hold it has it has on the country now and there just wasn't the same sort of awareness and social media and all that but i mean my goodness can you imagine can, can you imagine can you imagine if that Scotland England match like if Scotland Scotland got oh, yeah. the Czech Republic at uh, Hampden Park Can you imagine if they go into Wembley, and they've won their first match, and maybe England hasn't won their first match, or there's... Can you just imagine the pressure (laughs) on the English? Like, seriously,
1: the pressure
0: on the English players would be out of this world. Yeah, It would be a great story, man.
1: Hey, man, and we we saw a lot of uh, upsets at Euro 2016, so... A- anything can happen. It's uh, it's going to be a lot of fun seeing Scotland. It's a back great
0: tournament. Uh, to, me, a- to me, it's a better tournament than the World Cup.
1: Well, okay, that's a that's a pretty big statement, but
0: uh, in terms of quality of football, I, I think it is.
1: Okay, yeah, it, yeah, because the the depth of quality is is there. You don't have as many nations just getting their teeth kicked in <laughs> uh, as as you would in a, in a World Cup. So I, I can see that from that perspective, but uh, we'll have to table that discussion for another day here on the show. Uh, coming up next, Alex Webb of Bloomberg. Why, yes, why is Ryan Reynolds buying a fifth-tier club
0: pool, in North baby. Wales? <laughs> Deadpool, I love it.
1: We'll talk about that next on A Kick in the Grass. Back in on A Kick in the Grass, it's Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair. And it became official today on Monday that uh, Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhinney are buying Wrexham AFC in the fifth tier of English football. What is all this about? Well, let's bring in our next guest. He is Alex Webb of Bloomberg. Uh, Thanks for this, Alex. Um, So why is Ryan Reynolds uh, buying a fifth-tier club in North Wales? Well, I mean, in his saying, it's to, you
3: know, kind of return former glories such as they were, to this quite small club. But if you look at the sort of economics of, of, you know, what it's possible to do in terms of streaming content and the, and the value of that club there's a huge amount that um they can they can bring to it in terms of particularly making a, a documentary series of some sorts. So As they've said they intend to do so and um you know because the club currently is owned by the fans uh that means that they're not technically buying it off anyone they're just taking the club and pledging to put in two million pounds so frankly it's just all upside if if they're able to get some sort of streaming deal and and therefore reinvest in the club and, and progress it.
0: So who approached whom about this?
3: We don't know for sure, but we think that it's you know uh, the Ryan Reynolds and, and Rob McElhenney. He's the uh, the star and creator of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. They're bidding together. We think that their side are, are approached Wrexham. Um, they do have a a sort of sports. Boutique bank um, putting it together for them, based in New York. So um, it, it looks like it's come from that side of the equation.
1: It's uh, it is interesting. You know, this this whole uh, we're gonna create a reality television series out of this for for Netflix or whatever it may be. And and hey, I I'm the first to tell you, like Sunderland till I die was was great, and uh, all or nothing uh, really saw a, a different side of Jose Mourinho that I didn't really know existed after watching that. Uh, but d- does does anybody really want to watch a team in the fifth tier of of English football? I, I don't know how how alluring this is to to the generic sports fan.
3: Well, I think that's why it's it's
1: instructive to
3: think about it as reality TV. TV rather than documentary making and I think there is a difference you know documentary um, tends to follow something that's already happened happening and and just be sort of fly on the wall I think reality tv is something where you have a situation that's created for television and I think that that is the side on which this seems to be leaning and so you'll have two pieces to this clearly the thing follows following the fortunes of the football club but equally the kind of Hollywood factor of of these two actors maybe slight insight into their lives and the way they engage with the club and you know they are quite entertaining and they will bring I'm sure a flavor of that to this series you know they're both pretty big stars that also means that they can probably sell this series for more than they would be able to if it was literally just um, a documentary or, or reality show following the fortunes
0: of a lower league football team. How many similarities or differences are there, Alex, to the purchase of Salford City by, you know, the, the that sort of that, that generation of Manchester United players? Are, are, is, is this a different business proposition than that?
3: I think so, yes. I mean, there is a documentary about Salford City, but it's on the BBC. And I think it's, you know, it's not buying the team with that as the sort of one of the main intentions of how to... To, to mm. you know, return it to the, bl- to the black in terms of make it profitable. And and also, you know, the people who acquired that team, they are the sort of um, you know the '92 generation, uh, class of '92 from Man United, Nicky Barton, and David Beckham and uh, Ryan Giggs and the Neville brothers and Paul Scholes. You know, those guys, their focus is the, on the playing field. As far as we know, um, you know, Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds have no particular background in football or soccer. And uh, you know, their background inevitably is coming at it from, from the world of entertainment and you know ultimately sport as much as we love it is basically entertainment and looking at it through that lens you know any number of deals that get done in particularly football and um, when you get um, deals or acquisitions coming out of the U.S. they're looking at the value of those broadcast rights so in a sense this is just the sort of purest expression of that um, trend.
1: And yeah, I mean, there's there's uh, a large profit margin if they're able to to move, uh, Wrexham up uh, through the divisions. Uh, maybe uh, you know uh, uh, all their way to the Premier League would be some some form of miracle. But uh, even a couple of tiers up would be uh, great for the television series. But this is this is going on a, a lot of American investment into into European soccer here, Alex. Why why have we seen? so much, not just in the Premier League, but you're seeing it in, in Spain and, and in Italy as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that
3: the, 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 the trend of, of, of this sort of stuff happening is, is like um, there's a risk in all... All of this that we hit a ceiling in terms of the um the value of broadcast rights and so actually approaching it in this way is is quite sort of inventive because you're not necessarily worrying about those broadcast rights themselves you're worried you're thinking about it a little bit differently as that kind of reality show um it, it means there is uh, sort of something of, a, of a, a risk perhaps to the fans that the um you know players so the owners want to have an interesting story which of course means they want success, but they also you probably want some bumps along the way. You want to kind of you don't want a sort of sanitized version because it's hard to sustain a reality show for multiple seasons if that's the case. So um, I, it's an interesting model, and it, I think it'll be really interesting to see the extent to which it's successful and and, and whether others might think about following suit.
0: Now, Alex, uh, taking a broader look at the economics of of football right now, one of the things Dan and I talked about is. I, I don't think we will know the impact of the pandemic and the shutdown and the restart and you know the lack of fans and lack of revenue. I'm not certain we're going to know that until we see one of the bigger European clubs sold. And I'm just wondering, uh, because to me the value of a team is, I mean, it's not what we say it is. It's not what the owner says it is. It's what the person who wants to purchase it thinks it is. That ultimately is the value of the team. And I understand that Rexham's one thing and it's, you know, different than when we're talking about a a a major a major club. But as you look around Europe in particular right now, are there clubs that you think are in particularly dicey financial situations as a result of this and and is there a big club that you could see being sold, you know, within a year or so of us coming out of this?
3: That's a really hard one to predict. I mean, you know, I think it's often the clubs, perhaps, um, certainly in the UK that we're seeing, that aren't necessarily in the Premier League, you know, that are in the Championship or looking to League One and League Two, um, that they seem to be a- quite a lot more vulnerable, um, just mm-hmm. because they don't, you know, when you're dependent upon, um, you know, match day revenue, and that means the people coming through the gates, paying there for their tickets, and then buying whatever you buy inside the stadium you've lost all that revenue, but you're not offsetting it with the broadcast revenue, which in the Premier League, you know, can account for thirty to forty percent of income. Well, um in the smaller teams, it's a far smaller proportion of their overall income. So um I you know we're starting to see clubs risk going under but maybe ones that aren't at the forefront of your mind you know the likes of wrexham for, for instance um that doesn't mean there aren't clubs that are uh, you know enduring a little bit of difficulty i mean even barcelona which in revenue terms is the richest um not not just uh, football team but sports team in the world with you know it was anticipating a billion dollars in revenue this year well it actually only posts uh, profit of about 4 million euros. And some of that is through some quite, you know, astute financial engineering, Um, you know, it could be looking at posting a loss because its costs haven't necessarily reduced significantly. Um, And, and that like, clearly, that club is not going to go under, it can't be bought because it's owned by the fans. But but you know, there are any number of clubs that are going to endure a a, a tough sort of 12 months or however long it um, this you know, this crisis endures.
1: Do you think uh, we'll see more, um, you know, foreign investment into into English football into the the lower tiers and and seeing um, you know uh, investors try to grow a team into the Premier League like we've we've seen others? Uh, because you know, you, the comparison is to to Major League Soccer, right? And if you're an American yeah. and you want to get into MLS, it's it's now like three hundred million dollars. Uh, to just cut uh, a check for an expansion franchise, and here you go, you've got your club. But, you know, as you mentioned with this one with Ryan Reynolds, there's no initial financial outlay. And, uh, you know, there would be for other situations, but still it's it's a much lower cost with a much higher potential for uh, for return on investment, I would think.
3: Yeah, I think that is absolutely something that's feasible, and we've seen it in, in England with... um. Uh... Uh, Aston Villa, for instance, and, and, and Wolves, um, disclaimer, I'm a Villa fan, um, but, you know, that they get acquired when they're in the championship, you put a, you, you know, you do invest in the playing squad and in the facilities, but the moment you are promoted to Premier League, you're guaranteed, you know, 180 million um, pounds in additional revenue over the subsequent three years, um, you know, baseline so there is that this sort of more astute investors aren't necessarily trying to chase the man cities or man united's they are looking at what they might think of as a, as a sleeping giant the other trend that is really interesting actually is if you look at particularly private equity investors is they are increasingly trying to invest in the leagues themselves you know the risk when you are investing in a in a team is you are to a great extent beholden to the to the on-field performance, right? And there's a there's a risk factor there. If you're relegated, um, then the value of the club falls through the floor, as we've seen. Fulham, um, they're owned by Shahid Khan, who owns the Jaguars in the NFL. You know, Fulham's been relegated once. It looks like they might get relegated again. Um, and equally, even if you're at the top of that league, you might not qualify for the Champions League the next year. So these are all things that can impact your revenue and, and the sustain and the sort of predictability and, and, um, and stability of that revenue. If you invest in the league and we're seeing private equity investors trying to take a stake in um, Italy's Serie A, for instance, if you invest in the league, then you are de-risking that. You are guaranteed a certain amount of income covid dependent, um, but you'll guarantee the income because the the clubs are going to be playing in there every year and the top clubs. And so as the leagues become a little little bit more vulnerable because of the the um, the hit from the virus, we are seeing some sort of astute private equity investors um, lingering around the leagues. And and, the final thought on that is the model is really Formula One, where we saw CVC, which is a big private equity firm, acquire Formula One. uh, le- lever it up, take on a lot of debt. They took out a lot of special dividends, and they made a four or five times return on their initial investment um, in, in the space of, I think, five or six years before selling it to, to Liberty Media. And so, um, you know, th- this is a, a play which is quite tried and trusted and uh, others are looking to imitate.
0: You know, Alex, obviously the, the Premier League is the goal of every of every club, realistic or not. Is there a point, though, for a club like Wrexham where you start to see a financial return? Is it League One? Is it the championship? How how would you, you know, if you were sort of charting the growth of a club, at what point do we start talking about significant TV money, uh, significant revenue?
3: I I mean, the revenue question here is, is, I think, less significant than the the profitability question, right? You know, there's a joke about football, that how do you become a millionaire? Well, you start off as a billionaire and then you buy a football team. And um, I think that's why the the Wrexham approach is interesting because they are not necessarily going to be dependent upon the existing sort of structure within the league system for their revenue model. That, you know, if you can turn this into a reality TV show with five or six seasons or or even more of legs on it, then then actually you can create a moderately sustainable model. And and then by the time you get into League One or or Championship, perhaps, then you can look at selling the club for a greater multiple than what you bought it for um, you know it's always possible to spend all of your money um, you know and so no matter how much revenue you take um, you can always spend it again on player salaries and transfers um, now the only p- point that um, broadcast revenue really starts to become significant is in the premier league um, you do get clearly multiples more than you'll be getting right now in in the national league that's essentially the fifth division um, but to get the really big bucks you need to be you know competing against the Man United and dare I say Aston Villas of the world
1: <laughs> yeah it's uh, it, it hey maybe there's an FA Cup date uh, in in the future for for Wrexham with 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 one of the big clubs uh Alex this is uh it's been a pleasure uh thank you for for sharing some insights on this thank you thanks for having me on guys coming up next on a kick in the grass it is your questions for us here on the show Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair that's next on the Sportsnet Radio Network extremadura ud is leading the kick in the grass fantasy league he's on 532 points and has God. a liverpool-esque <laughs> lead of 36 points uh, on the next closest competitor <laughs> well we, we've got a lot of catching up to do jeff that's uh, no, that let's much just we know. Over. let's yeah. start over let's start over uh we we challenge the listeners to beat us at fantasy and they're doing so quite easily uh that didn't turn out all that well uh all right it's injury time here on a kick in the grass with dan riccio and jeff blair you can always get in your questions via dm on twitter at dan underscore and at sn jeff blair all right we start with ajay who's uh looking ahead to the la liga weekend jeff is it a must win for barcelona against atleti this weekend
0: where are they right now? Six, eight in the table?
1: Oh, they're they're pretty far down there. They are five points out from top four. But already They're nine think, out from the top, aren't they? Yeah, they're nine out from the top. And, yes. Uh, it, letting... is <laughs> it is a must than, like, win. Could we imagine Barcelona not making the top four in La Liga? Is that is that even possible? And we're way too early on this, I know. Oh, I I I mean that's just such a mess. It's,
0: yeah. you know, there's a difference between drama and the mess. There's always drama around Barcelona. You know, they feed off it. That's that's it's in their DNA. Hell, it's what makes them. It what it, it's what makes them sexy to a lot of people. But this isn't drama. This is just this is this is a a, a club and an organization It's just not. It's not very good right now. I mean, I I, I can't put it any other way you watch them play yeah uh, you know have they disappointed you this year i don't know yeah. i just don't think they're that good you know you know what i mean like yeah i'm not used to seeing them where they are in the standings but i've watched them play and they've lost matches to me very early in the match i'm watching them thinking they're not going to win and yeah. they don't so yeah i i think it's i i think it's a must i think they'll 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 scratch and claw their way into into third or fourth place, but uh, and and who knows what happens with the pandemic, and who knows what the impact is going to be of the compressed international table. But I'll tell you this: I look at them and they're, and they're the same. They're in the same position as clubs like Manchester United are. You do not want to have a bunch of teams between you and top spot. You don't want to be in a position. Where you're looking at the at the schedule and saying, in order to make up ground, we need four other teams to lose, four other yeah. clubs to lose on the on the day that, that we win. It's just not happening for him. I'm, it's just not happening for him this year.
1: Yeah, well, I, you know, I, we joke, but like if Barcelona don't make the top four, they're already in enough financial constraints. Uh, if they were to miss out on the top four. That would put even more pressure on the situation. They are five points back of uh, Real Madrid, uh, who sit in fourth at 16 points and nine points back of Real Sociedad, who lead the La Liga table. All right, continuing our injury time questions, and had teased this earlier, Mike saying, What did you make of Pogba's comments with the French squad? And what he's referring to is this. The France team is a breath of fresh air. The group is exceptional. It's magic. (laughs) He also did say, I had never known such a difficult period in my career. What do you make of these comments, Jeff?
0: Well, first of all, it amazes me that we spend all our time in the media business hammering players for being dull and boring and not saying anything. And then when a guy says something, we turn around and hammer him for saying something. (laughs) Um, But that's just, that. that's in a a general sense. That's not specific to Paul Pogba. I I don't blame him. You you look at, just watch Paul Pogba playing for France. Watch him playing for Manchester United. Watch the body language. Watch the joy. I love the French national team because they all look like they're having fun. There's, you, you watch them play and there's a real sense of purpose to them. Paul Pogba goes from being, when, when he's with France, he is, Didier Deschamps has made it very clear, he's one of the leaders in the team. That doesn't mean he has to be the most influential player on the pitch, but he is one of the leaders in the team. He's the guy that a lot of the social life revolves around. He's very popular with his teammates. He comes back to Manchester United and there's Ole. And, and what does Ole want him to do? Well, Ole's gonna play a 4-2-3-1, and try to put Pogba as part of the double pivot. You can't, you can't do that. It, it just, it, it, opens the team up too much, and it doesn't take advantage of the, it, or it, it doesn't make the best use of the guy's skills. So yeah, if I'm Paul Pogba, I would feel the same way. And again, I compare him. I just ask people: compare Paul Pogba in a French uniform to Paul Pogba in a Manchester United. Jersey yeah it's it's not it's not close and I feel for him I really do I don't care about the money everybody's making a lot of money right everybody's making a lot of money so I don't look at it and go well you know you're making x amount of dollars so you should be happy where you are I don't look at it that way
1: Pogba at the 2018 World Cup and Pogba with Manchester United is a totally totally different player uh, and, you know, he's, he's in the thick of his prime. It's not like he just lost his abilities. Um, but, you know, this is uh, a, a bigger issue that uh, is, is solely with the club. You know, even the the purchase of Donny Van de Beek, you know, um, that's another attacking midfielder. Mm-hmm. How many of those uh, how many of the central attacking midfielders do you want to fit into one squad? They've already got Bruno Fernandes taking up that spot. And so now you've got a lot of like players who you're having to try and fit into positions that aren't natural to them to try and use them on the field and get their talent on the field. And it's just doesn't always fit right and it doesn't always work and that's um that's been manchester united's biggest problem and it goes back to their overall transfer strategy whether there is a strategy or if they're just throwing darts at the wall which is kind of what it seems edward is ed woodward is doing sometimes uh all right and final question comes from paul if spurs beat city this week can we consider them title contenders nope okay easy enough (laughs) What do you think? What do you think? Uh, I I uh, I'm, I'm happy that I, I did have Spurs as uh, as a top four. I'm feeling pretty confident about that right now. I, you know what? If if they beat Manchester City this weekend I, at home, I will consider Tottenham a legitimate title threat. Liverpool oh. having even more issues on their back line with more injuries. Joe Gomez now. I mean the the door is open there for somebody and I I, I like Tottenham more than I do Leicester. I think Chelsea's on their way up and Manchester City still has a lot to show us uh, before uh, I, I give them back the, their preseason mantle of, of title, title winner that I had them at. So Danny
0: Danny Danny you know Spurs gonna Spurs <laughs> you just know Spurs gonna Spurs
1: yeah don't it, don't
0: fall for it don't fall for it you're, old, you're a much older wiser man now you're part of Hungarian royalty don't fall for <laughs> it Danny I'm, I'm begging you please don't fall for Spurs don't do
1: it uh, the way the way Harry Kane and Sun Yung-Min are playing I, it's it's hard it's hard not to believe in them a little bit they've they've got the talent to win games when they when they need it with those two, uh, so yeah, I'll say it. If they win, they're they're title contenders, true title contenders for me at least. I, I might be on an island with that, but because uh, even Jose Mourinho doesn't believe me, but um, I, I'm I'm there. It'd be a lost uh, island. <laughs> that'll do it for us here on a kick in the grass. Back next Monday, as always. Subscribe, leave a review on the podcast. That way, you never. Miss a show. For Jeff Blair, producer Cam Bear, I'm Dan Riccio. This has been a kick in the grass.